How much change do you think we're capable of? How much change do you think we're capable of? What if we could be sober-minded and dignified, self-control, loving, not addicted to anything, always speaking well of one another and never slandering or gossiping? What if we were always kind and respectful, showing integrity in all situations and eagerly seeking after what's good and true and right for all people at all times in all places? Well, you would probably say to me, that's a little too idealistic. You know, let's put our feet back down on reality. And yet this is the exact vision that the Apostle Paul has just described for us in the letter of Titus. He thinks this sort of life is in fact possible. So if you are just joining us this morning, again, welcome. Uh, We as a community have been walking through this ancient letter called Titus. It's founded the New Testament and we're trying to learn from it because the Apostle Paul wrote to his protege Titus, who was caring for a young burgeoning church on the island of Crete. And so there's a lot of things for us to learn. There's a lot of parallels. And the change that I just described is the exact picture Paul just described to the church. And it's the vision that he believes is attainable by young and old alike, by men and women, by those who have freedom and by those who are enslaved. And Paul envisions this way of life even taking place on the island of Crete. The Crete And if you're going to beta test a whole new way of life, a whole new humanity, Crete is not going to be the place you choose. Uh, Crete was a place known for piracy and malice. One of their own philosophers, a Cretan himself, he said this, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. To which the Apostle Paul even says in this letter, this testimony is true. The Cretans... They were defined by their lawlessness. They lived by their own code. They had a complete disregard for any sort of rule. But you have to understand, lawlessness is not just flag-burning anarchy. Rather, lawlessness is about something deeper within the human spirit. It's about self-rule. When you hear the word lawless, you could also hear self-rule. It's to stand above any law or instruction and say, I know better. Or say, this doesn't apply to me. And so for the person who's lawless, there's no higher rule or authority than your own. So Cretans, they're lawless because they rule themselves. They live solely for themselves. And yet, Paul believes Cretans can change into the sort of people he just described. How? You know, how do you help people who live so self-focusedly for themselves become the sort of people Paul just described. That's the challenge in Crete. That's the challenge facing Titus. And that's the challenge in this room as well. This past week, I saw a a cartoon in the New York Times that made me laugh. Uh, The the setting is a therapist's room, a place I'm well acquainted with, as you can tell. And uh, a butterfly is perched elegantly upon the, the therapist chair, assuming the role of the therapist. And as you can see, the caterpillars stretched out on the couch, assuming the role of uh, the patient and the caterpillar is looking up at the butterfly of what it could be, kind of longingly, you know, starry-eyed at this butterfly. And the butterfly looks down and says to the caterpillar, the thing is, you have to really want to change. Not exactly, right? Like this, though, about sums up the modern approach to change. We have to desire to change and then exert our willpower to become the sort of person we want to be. But as this cartoon points out, It's not exactly an accurate approach to change. 
If the caterpillar wants to become a butterfly, a whole lot more is involved than just desire and willpower. And yet the sort of change Paul's talking about here in Titus is as drastic as a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. It is a total transformation of the person. And so Paul, he's reminding Titus that if lawless people like Cretans are going to be transformed into people who walk in the ways of Jesus, they can't just be given a list of rules and instructions and be told, go and do likewise. That won't actually fix anything. And they can't just be told they really need to want to change Because what if they don't? What if they have no interest in changing? And so as we work our way through this passage this morning, here's the one idea I want us to try to get our minds around, and it's this. Only grace can change us through and through. Only grace can change us through and through. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Titus. Uh, We're going to be spending our time in chapter 2, verses 10 through 14, Uh, If you don't own a Bible, take one of our great Bibles home with you. We would love for you to have that. Everything's on the screen behind me. But we're going to work our way through this passage to see what we can learn about grace. Titus chapter 2, verse 10, Paul writes, In everything adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Have you ever stepped back and wondered or thought that what you believe could be the most beautiful thing about you? That your beliefs could actually be the most beautiful thing about you? Sounds a little odd, doesn't it? But... That's exactly what the Apostle Paul is suggesting. He's saying we can adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And what he has in mind specifically is grace. According to Paul, when we understand grace, we can adorn ourselves with it. We can dress in it. We can wear it. And grace will change us through and through. But when we hear the word grace, you know, in everyday language, it usually refers to some sort of elegance in a person. You know, the dancer had grace, right? Or uh, it's a way of of showing respect, your grace, right? Uh, But that's not what Paul meant by grace. When Paul says the grace of God appeared, we can hear him saying Jesus Christ has appeared. And if we're going to summarize the life of Jesus, especially how he gave his life for us on the cross, his life can be summarized with this one word, grace. If you want a definition of grace, often it's described as unmerited favor. I find that a little stiff. I quite like Paul Zoll's definition. In his book, Practicing Grace, he wrote this. Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is being loved when you're unlovable. It's being loved when you're the opposite of lovable. So at its simplest, grace is unconditional love, even when we don't deserve it. And we can begin to get a better understanding of grace by considering who gets to receive grace. Who is grace for? Who's the recipients of grace? And Paul writes, grace appeared And offers salvation for who? For all people. Every person. Even Cretans. And that's scandalous. 
Now, grace brings salvation to people described as perpetual liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. In other words, grace appears to the unrighteous, to the morally questionable, to those who are a little more than just rough around the edges. Grace appears to these kinds of people and offers them forgiveness, a totally clean slate, a permanently clean slate. It welcomes them to the table. And they have no qualifications to deserve grace. In fact, they're quite undeserving and unworthy of it. They might not even be looking for it, and yet grace appeared all the same and offers them forgiveness and a relationship with God. This means, if we really understand it, no one is too far gone for grace. It doesn't matter what you've done or how far you've strayed or how big of a mess you're currently in in this moment. You are never beyond grace. Never. And this experience of grace is for all people, which means every single person you lock eyes with, every single person in this room needs grace. No one stands above needing grace and no one is too far gone for grace. It doesn't matter if you're the most moral person in the world or a Cretan. Every single person needs the grace that only Jesus Christ offers. And this grace can be yours through faith in him. That's all it takes. But the question is, how does grace change Cretans? How does this help people who live entirely for themselves begin to live for God instead? Well, let's stick with Paul's train of thought here. He goes on to say in verse 12, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us. This could also be translated instructing us or educating us or tutoring us. Have any of you ever had a tutor? Yeah, my first tutor was a talking pineapple, uh, a French tutor. Have, was any of, anyone exposed to this guy through Telefrancais? You Telefrancais, one person. And uh, this anthropomorphized pineapple taught me four words that have been embedded in my soul. I still carry them with me. And here they are. Je suis Hopefully you can deduce that means I am a pineapple. That's about all the French I picked up through elementary school. And honestly, it's about all the French I can still muster. But French was mandatory through high school and I struggled. My parents were concerned. They saw that I was on a firm trajectory towards failing. And so they hired me a French tutor, uh, Madame Marie Dubois. I can't remember her name, but that sounds French. And... (laughs) We met twice a week over the course of a whole semester. But to her discouragement, I made little to no progress. Even with money spent, a tutor, and time invested, I failed the class, sac le bleu. But there was, there was good news. My French teacher did not like me and could not bear the thought of having me in her class again. And so she bumped me up to a passing grade. That's how I passed French 11. Not skill, just my bad character. To her, I was a little cretin. Now, according to her resume, according to her recommendations, my tutor was among the best. But even tutors with the best skills and intentions can still be ineffective. Tutors can't make someone desire to learn. Tutors can't give them the will to go and do their homework. And so if your experience with a tutor is anything like mine, it's hard to get enthusiastic about grace appearing as a tutor. 
Because when it comes to our personal growth or the formation of our character, there's loads of tutors out there, isn't there? You may have tried religion or the self-help movement or piles of books and advice and counseling. You may have even tried Christianity and feel like you've made little to no progress in your personal development. Maybe you've tried to find an adequate tutor, but none of it's working. None of it's changing you because at the end of the day, all the work, all the effort, all the pressure is still squarely upon your own shoulders. And it can leave you feeling tired. It can leave you feeling inadequate. It can even leave you feeling like a failure. And it's even possible for some of us here that growing as a person, developing your character, you don't care. You just don't care. It's not even on your radar. And no tutor is going to change that. But grace is different. Grace is altogether different. Paul wants us to see that when our lives are adorned with grace, the pressure is off. He writes elsewhere in a letter to the Philippians that it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you hear the good news in that? God is at work in you to give you the desires and even the ability to carry them out for his good pleasure. What Paul is saying that is that grace includes Jesus making a home in us through the power of his spirit. Jesus takes up residence in us and grace is keep, capable of doing in us what we can't do for ourselves. And even if the desire is missing altogether, grace is capable of giving birth to that desire. And, it's even capable of giving us the ability to carry it out. Look at what Paul continues to say in verses 12 through 13 here in Titus. Grace has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, when we're adorned with grace, grace takes us on as an apprentice. It tutors us and it empowers us in this new way of living. Grace empowers us to say no to an old quality of life and yes to a new quality of, of life. And so grace is teaching us a new way of saying no and yes. It's saying you have to look at your life and your characteristics and what you do with your time and your energy. And some of it, you're going to have to start saying no to. Some of these things that have been accustomed to your life, you have to begin saying no to. Grace will tutor you in that. But at the same time, grace will tutor you in what you need to say yes to. Some of it might be things that are already kind of partially within you that have been a little dormant. And grace is saying, you know, bring that to bear more. Yes, say yes to that. And there might be things, times, practices you bring into your life that you need to start saying yes to as well. But I have to admit, in writing this sermon, it was really tempting and quite easy, actually, to come up with a, a list of things that I think all of you should start saying no to. <laughs> right? And then a shorter list of the things I think you need to start saying yes to. But that would miss the point. That would miss the point. Grace is not just about saying no to the wrong things and saying yes to the right things. Rather, what Paul is stressing here is how grace gives us an entirely new motivation altogether. There's a new reason we're saying no and yes. So let's say you're the person trying to grow and uh, you're, you're motivating yourself with a vision of who you would like to be. And it might be even the vision Paul provides in this letter, or it might be something you found on Instagram. And you say to yourself, I want to be like that. 
And that's not entirely bad. It's not bad to want to grow, but the problem is you're still focused on yourself. Who you want to be is your primary focus, and therefore you are the motivation for change. But grace offers a new motivation. Grace teaches us to set our hope on Jesus. That's what Paul's saying here. Grace teaches us to wait on Jesus, to wait and to remember who Jesus is, to trust in his promises, to trust in his character. And so what motivates us to change and grow as a person is not who we might become in the process. Instead, what motivates us is who Jesus is. Look at what Paul says in verse 14. We're waiting for Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's return to the caterpillar uh, in the therapist's room for a minute. The truth about the caterpillar is, if it wants to become a butterfly, it must enact a process of death in order to be remade. Once in the cocoon, the caterpillar literally digests itself, releasing enzymes to dissolve all of its tissues. If you were to cut the cocoon open at the right time, caterpillar soup would spill out. The caterpillar must begin a process of death before its transformation takes place. And then at the right time, certain genetic code rebuilds what remains into a new being, into a butterfly. It's not just transformation, it's a total rebirth. And so the butterfly's advice is not going to cut it. You simply have to want to change completely overlooks that a death must take place in order for that change to be possible at all. The sort of transformation Paul envisions for us is so radical that can feel like he's inviting us to die and be reborn. And if that's what you're feeling, you're right. That's exactly what Paul is saying. If we want to walk in the ways of Jesus and live more and more in ways that honor who God is, it's well beyond of something that we can achieve by recalibrating our desires or exerting enough self-will. A death must take place that's capable of generating new life in us. And that death has taken place. As Paul says, Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. Now, I suspect many of us here are still reluctant to identify as someone who is lawless. So we might not see why Jesus had to die to redeem people from lawlessness. But let's remember, lawlessness is not flag-burning anarchy. It can include that, but it's about self-rule. Lawlessness is about living as if you're the highest authority in your life. It's living primarily for yourself, your own wants, your own desires. So lawlessness does not always mean you're a terrible person. Sure, we could envision the pirates who live recklessly. We can envision, uh, envision you know, people who commit heinous crimes and break serious laws. And we could see why extreme measures might be taken to redeem that sort of person. And yet the exact same measures are required for people who have lawlessness that is much more subtle. To help you see this, let's envision a lawless or self-rule approach to personal growth. You know, in this scenario, you've got your vision board. You determine what is good. 
You're not necessarily concerned about any deep moral order to the universe, but you do want to uphold cultural norms and societal expectations. But ultimately, you determine the sort of character that is worth pursuing. And you determine the path that's going to get you there. And you take care of assessing yourself and determining what needs to change and what might need to, to be recalibrated. And along the way, you determine how you're succeeding or how you're failing. You're living for yourself. You're ruling yourself. You're at the center of your universe. And it's lawlessness. So sure, your lawlessness isn't flag-burning anarchy, but it is cosmic anarchy. It's a quiet and subtle rejection of God's authority, of God's ways, of God's desires, of God's intentions for how we should live. It's a rejection of his presence and his invitation to walk with him into the sort of life he envisions for us. And we've all been lawless in some capacity, subtle or overt. We've all been stuck in patterns of living for ourselves and our own wants and desires. In some way, shape, or form, all of us have broken the laws of God. Do not covet. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not commit adultery. And even when we think we're getting the hang of that, Jesus ups the bar and says, this is really about your heart. Even if you have the thought of harming someone, you've murdered them. Even if you've had a lustful thought, you've committed adultery. I mean, none of us can live up to that. As Paul will go on to say in the very next chapter of this letter, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Paul's not being hyperbolic or hypothetical. He's describing the human condition with brutal honesty. But when God could have rightly said no to us, no, you're lawless. No, you're not good enough. No, you're ungodly. No, you've messed up. No, you're not worthy. Instead, grace appeared. Grace is the surprising yes, even when we deserve to hear a no. And grace appeared to redeem us out of lawlessness. This word redeem, it comes from the economy of slavery. It's to purchase someone out of their bondage, out of their slavery. Jesus came to redeem us from living for ourselves because when you live completely for yourself, it is indeed a form of slavery. It doesn't look like it on the surface, but it is. Because at the end of the day, you're in your own prison. You're your own guard and ruler and judge. And if it's going well, the consequence is actually you become arrogant and isolated from others. And if it's not going well, you end up feeling ashamed and unable and incapable you're trapped within yourself. And you see, any attempt at personal growth that appeals to your own will, that appeals to your own desires as the primary source of change, it doesn't actually heal this lawlessness. Instead, it appeals to it. It says it's up to you. Rule yourself. Go it alone. It's a subtle and yet serious rejection of God. But now, now we can be freed from this way of life. We can live new lives because we're living for Jesus who said yes to us. There's power in this yes. But we have to ask, why did he say yes to us at all when he could have justly said no? There's an important word tucked away. I want you to see it in verse 14. A people for his own possession. It's literally a special possession or the most treasured item in the treasury. So we have to ask, what does it feel like 
to be treasured. As I've become a father, I've learned a lot about love. Uh, but what surprised me isn't just the strength of my love for my, my daughters, Maggie and Ansley. What has been a glimpse of grace is the strength of their love for me. The other day, we were getting ready to head out, and Ansley and Maggie and I were dressed and ready to go, and, and Julia had to run upstairs briefly, and so I said to the girls, hey, let's hide under this blanket, and so mommy has to search and try to find us when they come down and play a little game, and, and the girls thought that was a great idea, and so the three of us curled up on the, on the couch under this orange blanket, and it's a thin blanket, so the light's still coming through, and we're like bathed in this nice, warm, orange hue. And as we hid, hid there, the girls thought this was a great opportunity to start telling me all the reasons why they love me. Ansley said, Daddy, you're special to me. You're my only daddy. Nobody else can be you. I love you. My heart is so filled with love for you. And Maggie took her sister's cue and goes, you're my daddy too. <laughs> I love you. And to my good fortune, Julia took much longer than anticipated, and I was okay with it for a change. Because I was being treasured, deeply treasured, and it changed my desires. I had no urge to get out the door. I couldn't even remember where we were going. I was taught, I was brought into the power of the moment through the joy of being treasured. And that's just a small taste compared to how God treasures us, how God treasures you. God treasures you. God has said yes to you and you're loved, and you're cherished, and we can know this because of grace. When you say, well, how can I know this is true? How can I know God feels this way about me? Grace appeared, not hypothetically, but within history. And grace demonstrated the breadth of God's love for you by dying on a cross. If you ever want to know the, the power of God's love for you, all you need to do is look to the cross. You see, if we step back then, we do discover that our belief in grace is the most beautiful thing about us. Because our belief in grace says that we're cherished and we're treasured and we're loved beyond our wildest dreams. And it's this experience of being treasured by God that is the only force powerful enough to change what drives us, to give us a whole new motivation for living. Because it draws us in. When you experience the grace of God, all you want to do is remain in it. When you're cherished, you want to stay in that place. And when you do, what does the text say? Jesus purifies his special possession. Do you see the pressure's off? Paul writes in verse 14, Jesus himself will purify his possession so that we become zealous for good works. So Jesus and Jesus alone will cultivate within us a desire, a passion, a zealousness to live for what is good and right and true. And so the pressure's off. And your self-rule can be overcome by God's loving and gracious rule. So my question for you this morning is, do you know this grace? Is this grace at the core of your being, driving who you are, how you see yourself, your sense of identity, and how you approach the world and how you approach your own character formation? If not, if grace is a concept entirely new to you or grace is something that you still struggle to receive and believe, I just want you to know we're here for you and we would love to walk alongside you and help you learn more about grace and help you experience grace. And you can start by simply praying, Jesus, please show me grace. Because Jesus is eager to answer that prayer. 
and Jesus will tutor you in the ways of grace, you can come to him. And this concept of grace is so important that in our last passage in Titus next week, Paul goes back to grace again from a new angle. He says, Titus, it is so important that the church understand what grace is that I'm going to describe it again in the exact same pattern with a slightly different slant so that you see that grace and grace alone is what's sufficient for the day. So I'd encourage you, if you want to learn more about grace, we'll be here next week. For those of us who've lived by self-rule for way too long, and in this culture, I think that's most of us, the, the power of grace is it teaches us to say no to too much navel-gazing. It teaches us to take our eyes off of ourselves and to say yes to fixing our eyes on Jesus. And the surprise is the less we think about ourselves and the more we fix our eyes on who Jesus is, we begin to change. Because only Jesus is capable of reorienting our deepest motive for living. So let me ask you, how much change do you think we're capable of? What if we could be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, loving, not addicted to anything, always speaking well of others and never slandering? What if we were kind and respectful, showing integrity in all situations and eagerly seeking after what is good and true and right for all people at all times and all places? Grace. The sheer unmerited generosity and unconditional love of God is what makes that possible. And so if we want to change, we change by drawing near to Jesus and his grace. And we can change through and through because grace is the surprising yes that God says to us, that God says to you.